Welcome to What in the World. My name is Andre, being joined by Ryan. Ryan, how are you doing? I think you just got back from skiing. Your face is blood red. What happened? It's just cold, Andre. I did get uh, back from skiing, uh, a nice long ski day in Colorado. My legs are sore. I'm sore. But it is January 6th, and so there's a lot to talk about. Uh, of course, this episode's coming out on the 7th, uh, but it is the one-year anniversary of January 6th, 2021, the insurrection, something that Andre and I have talked a lot about on the podcast, especially our kind of quick and dirty episode right after uh, the events at the Capitol a year ago today, Andre. Andre, it's still, I mean, unbelievable yeah, it is. Yeah. that this happened. Yeah. It's totally unbelievable. I mean, we've had a couple of episodes that have focused on January 6th. The two that stand out in my mind are the ones with Professor Robert Pape on political violence, and then another with Will Carlos from the USA Today, because he was a reporter who was actually at the Capitol building. He actually sat next to Ashley Babbitt on the plane ride from San Diego to DC. Uh, crazy, isn't it? it? It's absolutely crazy. Um, but I think one thing we can kind of take away from this is that a big chunk of the country, if not, I'd say most people in this country, realize what that event was and are now preparing to move forward. Of course, there's a, certainly a segment of the population and also a, a big seemingly segment. a big segment of social media, a, a segment of social media and the population that believe that it was justified, that the you know, insurrection was a means to get rid of a illegal election or unfair election, which of course has been disproven. Joe Biden and Kamala Harris fairly won the, the 2020 election. But of course, they're still within um, the Republican Party and those on the fringe that think otherwise. The proclivity for some people to now feel that political violence is justified uh, for what they want, it's, it's sort of scary. I mean, Ryan, I remember... When we, we post our episodes on YouTube, right? So we post the Professor Pape one on YouTube, and a guy sent us a death threat on the comment section. And uh, I was sort of happy because, I mean, hey, I mean, we're doing something right. But also, I mean, the death threat, and like he gave us a pretty nasty death threat on, those, on that YouTube comment, sort of proved Professor Pape's point about political violence, didn't it? <laughs> Absolutely. I, I mean, listen, if you're going to, threatened to, you know, 20-something-year-old guys who are having a podcast about uh, political events. I mean, first off, I guess, you know, it's my first death threat. And so it maybe it's- I laughed. Right. Yeah. Maybe it's something to, to kind of, you know, giggle at. But also, I mean, it's, it's certainly concerning that there are people in this country that believe that sincerely that it's wrong or that the, you know, January 6th was an event that was necessary in this country to, you know, move towards their weird form of democracy or whatever. but. Uh, authoritarianism yeah, yeah, yeah exactly their form of democracy is certainly authoritarianism yeah exactly you know and there have been a lot of interesting uh takeaways from the one year anniversary uh president biden was speaking today at the capitol uh there was a little i think moment of silence and something in the house of representatives that uh, speaker pelosi presided over I think the only two Republicans who were actually there at that particular event were Liz Cheney and her father, former Vice President Dick Cheney. Can you believe that Dick Cheney is like one of the only Republicans to actually be there at the commemoration of January 6th? Out of all the people. It, it is, yeah, it is kind of crazy that Dick Cheney was there. But it's also nice to see that conventional Republicans are saying this is unacceptable. This is not who the Republican Party is. And if more and more people from the Republican Party or more Republicans can stand up and say, we do not stand for this, this is not our party, those who think otherwise are you know, not Republicans, they don't stand for the values 
uh, then at least we can move towards some sort of normalcy between just party politics, not the crazy extremes that we've experienced over the past couple of years. And I mean, you were just telling me earlier, Ryan, that Ted Cruz uh, called the attack, what, a violent terrorist attack? And then he got attacked for saying that by Fox News or something? Well, yeah. Was it Tucker Carlson? Yeah, so he was on Tucker Carlson's show and Ted Cruz rightly said that January 6th was a violent terrorist attack. And Tucker basically said it, it was more of a riot. It wasn't a violent terrorist attack. It wasn't insurrection, which is just absolutely ridiculous that you can call that those events just, you know, a riot or maybe just a gathering or, you know, protesting. That is, I mean, it's ridiculous. They broke into federal property. They killed people. And I mean, it's just, I, I, I really- and they were aiming to kill people. They were trying to hang the vice president, Mike Pence, and they were trying to hang speaker Nancy Pelosi. So, I mean, they were aiming to kill people. Um, uh, and I mean, I, I think I think one of the arguments that people will say that maybe people on the right wing will say when we bring up January 6th is, OK, like, what about the the riots that we saw after the whole Black Lives Matter sort of situation popped up over the summer? And uh, well, I mean, those folks didn't try to stop a democratic process from happening in the Capitol building. There was a lot of other chaos that happened, though. But I mean they didn't attack a democratic institution. No, I mean, I think distinctions could easily be made. Of course, there are extremists on both sides. And Andre, we've highlighted yeah. that on the podcast time and time again. Uh, but we have to say- We ask about it of too. Course, we have to pay special attention to this event just because of how close we got to completely destroying our, our democratic institutions. The most important one, at least in my opinion, is our, our voting in our elections. Uh, they attempted to undermine that completely, destroy it, harm the individuals that were trying to conduct the electoral process. And so that, I mean, is if there's anything to undermine democracy that's so clear, it's January 6th. Yeah. And President Biden gave a speech today that sort of talked about, uh, I mean, he really named out Trump as like the prime instigator and so on. And he gave a very forceful speech. The most forceful I've actually seen President Biden be in a while. And I think Biden is really seeing himself as, you know, the person who can prevent democracy from falling. I mean, that was the whole sort of idea of his campaign, you know, restore decency and all of that to America. But I don't think he necessarily expected January 6th to happen. I mean, this guy is an old school guy, been in politics for 50 years, national politics for 50 years, actually this year. I mean, that's crazy. I mean, it's, it's unprecedented. I mean, that's why, I mean, frankly, yeah. I don't even think the Capitol Police, of course, there are, you know, we've talked about some of the unpreparedness of, of the Capitol Police and other remnants of federal authorities. That's a whole separate issue. But I mean, no one could think that Americans would attempt to overthrow an election, essentially, by force. I mean, that is as un-American as anything. Yeah, absolutely. But I think it brings up a broader conversation on the nature of political violence in the United States. And we had a conversation with uh, Professor Pape on that idea, but also in many other, you know, forms of riots and forms of protests and so on. And the fact that a sizable chunk of the population, again, is starting to feel that political violence may be justified to achieve their means. You know, Ryan, I was actually reading an interesting article. So folks, uh, disclaimer, I'm a Christian, I'm an Episcopalian, and all of that. And I consider myself religious. But uh, this great theologian, Dr. Russell Moore, authored an article in the Christian Today magazine that was titled, The Capital Attack Signaled a Post-Christian Church. 
not merely a pro post Christian culture. And I think what he and many others have really talked about, many within the Christian faith in America have talked about, there's a surge in Christian nationalism. We talk about Hindu nationalism in India. We talk about Islamic nationalism in the Middle East. Uh, we talked about Buddhist nationalism in Sri Lanka. We have Christian nationalism that exists in America uh, because during the January 6th riots and so on, there were people with signs who were saying Jesus saves and they were holding Bibles and having other Jesus uh, you know, paraphernalia as they were basically beating the heads of these cops at the Capitol, right? I mean, that's not reflective of the faith at all. But I thought it was a really interesting article because, uh, again, you sort of see religion sometimes being used by authoritarians to consolidate their power or politicians and so on who are of that nationalist flavor. They'll frame something, as Dr. Moore points out in this article, they'll frame a certain political struggle as apocalyptic right? Like, it's the end if we don't do this. And uh, I think you're you're observing that in many of these more extremist strains. They might not even be reading the Bible, but there might just be this sort of, uh, this set of weird values that have been created out of this maybe Christian nationalism. It's, it's a fundamental problem. And I you know I'm not a Christian, so I don't actually have the baseline understanding of Christianity or my, the, the faith that of being you know, a Christian. And so that is, you know, at least for me, my outsider view. And Andre, we talked about this when it comes to like orthodoxy in Russia and how that's been used by the state for political reasons. And we talked, of course, about Hindu nationalism, but the United States in particular, you know, yes, much of this country is Christian and they you know, could very well practice the religion and they could vote, you know, under certain values. Um, but when you're utilizing religion uh, to then take advantage of, of, of politics, essentially, or use it as a, basically a, a calling card or, or weaponizing religion to then go forth and either harm individuals, discriminate against other individuals, or disenfranchise people. I mean, that is not in line with at least my understanding of, of the very religion that they're pur- purporting to represent. Yeah. And there have been many clergy across uh, the Christian denominations in the United States who have spoken out vociferously against this. But again, I mean, like religion being used as a tool of authoritarianism is nothing new. As a tool of uh, extremist politics is nothing new. I mean, in Sri Lanka, I used to see pictures and videos of these Buddhist monks in their saffron robes beating up other people. I mean, it's crazy, right? Who would think a Buddhist monk would go like punch a guy in the face? Like, what's going on? But I mean, it's it's a thing that we have to be wary of. So I mean, it's it's a great article that I was reading. If you're of the Christian persuasion, uh, I recommend that you also read it. Absolutely. Well, uh, Andre, although it is January 6th, and there's, you know, of course, always a lot to talk about, about this event and remembering the, the day that occurred. There's a lot else going on in the world. And so I want to move to Kazakhstan, uh, where protests have erupted. Protesters have been killed en masse. And now basically the, the Kazakh government has called in a military alliance led by Russia to basically quell the unrest. And so uh, Kazakhstan is a former Soviet republic. It has you know, certainly a lot of influence um, with, within the post-Soviet space. It's a very big country. It's a, a wealthier country of many of the post-Soviet countries, um, but it has undergone some instability. And of course, now we're seeing these mass, demonstra- mass demonstrations, which is a huge challenge uh, to the autocratic president, uh, Tokayev. Um, of course, 
there was a, a predecessor president. Um, he, uh, Nur Sultan um, Najibayev, is kind of in this overarching role. So he's not actually de jure leading the country. He's kind of de facto leading the country. But nonetheless, uh, we have this unrest, political instability. And now, of course, Russia is involving itself yet again. But it, at this time, at the invitation of the Kazakh government. So how is, is Kazakhstan bordering Russia or did it share a big border? Were they former Soviet Union? Yes, yes. So Kazakhstan is basically South Central Siberia. It's kind of that part of Russia. Um, and it, it does share a significant border with Russia. A lot of you know Russian launches and nuclear development occurred in Kazakhstan. There's a lot of uh, Russian nationals in Kazakhstan. Um, and so it's, it's had a very close relationship with Russia forever, I mean, essentially, but also certainly in the, in the post-Soviet space. Um, and now, of course, like many other uh, post-Soviet republics, so all, all of these Central Asian countries have in some way or, or, the, or another had some level of political instability, either change in leadership, unrest from below, changes in a, you know, the leadership from above. Uh, but again, I think what's most interesting this time is that they have invited Russia into the country to quell the violence. So what was the deal with the leadership? The government basically resigned, right, in the face of these protests. Why, why were they so, I mean, inclined to resign that quickly? You know, I, I'm not quite sure why we saw, you know, mass kind of the government being sacked um, so quickly, just because in a lot of these countries, the security apparatus is robust. And they have a lot of authority, and they also know that they can call in others to kind of quell protests, which is what we're seeing now. Um, it is kind of a show of kind of concession to protesters when they change, whether, whether if they dissolve a government or they, you know, say that we'll fire some individuals who may not be performing in a certain way. Um, but uh, so this kind of this this mass resignation, at least to me, is more of like a hey, we're doing something. And not necessarily like it's it's all falling apart. Mm, very interesting. Very interesting. Ryan, is there any update about the Ukraine and Russia? Not really, I would say. So Ukraine, of course, is still preparing uh, for a Russian offensive. Uh, of course, by most analysts, they said that it could occur uh, as early as late January, as late as, you know, midwinter to late winter. But no one really knows. Only Russia knows or does not know what they're going to do. And now uh, the U.S., of course, has said that they're, they're essentially drawing a red line, which is, at least in my opinion, uh, the right thing to do, saying that if Russia invades Ukraine again, that the U.S. and its allies will take substantive action. Now, that's likely short of military action, but sanctions certainly could happen, kicking Russia uh, out of some of the, the global financial structure. Um, and that could have a big bite. Um, of course, I'm not sure uh, if that would actually dissuade President Putin from acting, um, but also the e the European Union's getting involved. Other countries um, in Europe are getting involved as well, and that's important. Essentially, building a strong enough coalition against Russian action is the only way in which I see this working to stop Putin from invading outside of actual military intervention. Well, is there any? Uh, could the situation in Kazakhstan could that affect Putin's calculus on how he thinks about Ukraine? I don't see it. Uh, uh, they are, of course, sending some troops to Kazakhstan, so that in in my mind, it doesn't actually limit the capabilities and the resources going towards Ukraine. Uh, Russia's military and security forces are strong enough and large enough. Uh, to send a small force to Kazakhstan to quell uh, unrest, which 
I mean, as unfortunate as it may be, could be stopped very, very quickly. Um, but I don't, from what I've seen, I don't believe any of the assets around Ukraine have been moved. They're all standing there. Um, and so that may not impact, unless the situation in Kazakhstan significantly deteriorates, where the country essentially goes in, into some state of anarchy, which would require even more resources. Uh, I don't see it as even a little bit impacting what may happen in Ukraine. Mm. Very interesting. And of course, we had that great episode released last week with uh, former U.S. Ambassador to Ukraine, Steve Pfeiffer, who's associated with the Brookings Institution and Stanford, who talked at length about this whole issue, Russia-Ukraine. Uh, but Ryan, I want to move on and talk a bit about COVID because COVID's everywhere again, all the time. Uh, and China... China, whose policy with regards to COVID in 2020 was basically locking down entire cities, is trying that policy again in 2022. Uh, the city of Xi'an, I think it's Xi'an, uh, has been locked down since December 22nd. Uh, that's a city of about 13 million people. That's like 10 San Diego's, uh, uh, 20 DCs maybe. Uh, it's been locked down. and. I'm not so sure that strategy is going to work, locking down an entire city. I don't think it's going to work. Well, you know, we might be viewing this in the wrong lens. Of course, the United States, it definitely wouldn't work. I don't think lockdowns are going to be successful anymore, just given how many individuals are going to be impacted by lockdowns um, and how hard it is even right now to get people vaccinated or to wear masks. Um, in China, you know, given the capacity of their authoritarian state, they can... <laughs> repress you into locking down. But of course, I mean, it's not a- That's a, a lot of people to it, repress. You're right. It is a lot of people. Um, but the Chinese state, I at least in my opinion, does have the capability. The only other thing is that, I mean, the economic impact, of course, for China. Um, a Xi'an is, is a very important economic hub. And so the, the implications for that, as we know, COVID's lockdown implications economically are significant. And so the longer that you know, areas are locked down, the worse the impact will be not only for, you know, the state, but also for the people. And I mean, also remember, I mean, while Xi Jinping and the Communist Party in China are de facto authoritarian, I mean, they still have to operate on, on, you know, somewhat the will of the people, like they just can't do whatever the heck they want. Remember, there were times, I think, over the past year, I think the climate, I think COP26, for example, Xi didn't actually show up because he was in a very precarious political situation at home because he was just about to lantern his term and so on. And a lot of people were paying attention to his energy policies because there was some dissatisfaction with some of Xi's uh, energy policies. And again, there was also dissatisfaction with how Xi dealt with COVID in the beginning stages, not just across the world, but within China. And locking down 13 million people, especially as videos of, for example, a mother losing her baby uh, in the pregnancy have been leaking. People have not been happy. So politically, even in China, even though its government is strong, they still had to tread very carefully with regards to this. They still had to tread very carefully, especially if this is going to be a recurring thing. Because I think Xi'an only had about 1,800 cases out of 13 million. Yeah, and hey, you're, you're absolutely right. Um, you know, despite China's ability to repress its people and its authoritarian nature, uh, of course, you know, the people, there's still a lot of, of, of people in China and they do from time to time come together and express their displeasure with certain policies. And so, uh, yes, 
um, there is still kind of a will of the people in some semblance. Yeah, geez. And I mean, uh, what was it? In other COVID news, Australia, I think they're planning on deporting uh, the tennis player, the Djokovic. The Djokovic? Novak Djokovic. Yeah, Djokovic. Yeah. Yeah. So he's, um, you know, was set to play in the Australian Open. He got um, a, an exemption uh, for to the country's vaccine requirements. Um, but then the Australian government stepped in and said that's that's unacceptable. So the, the state government and Australian tennis officials originally granted him an exemption. Um, but then on his arrival, a border official said that he did not meet the country's requirements for entry and that they canceled his visa. And so a, an appeal was filed um, today on Thursday. And so there's now anger in Australia, which has you know enforced these rules because an exemption for a famous tennis star, that doesn't seem very unfair when most of the population does not get exemptions. And so this is really calling into question across every country, you know, who gets exemptions, who doesn't, the federal policies versus, you know, maybe you know, some other types of things. And of course, we see this with athletes in the United States. You know, there are professional athletes who have not been playing because they're not willing to get vaccinated. And so that has prevented a lot of, you know, a handful of them from participating. And so it's very interesting to see uh, this playing out in other countries as well. Yeah, in Australia, I mean... Australia, the Liberal Party rules Australia, but keep in mind the Liberal Party under Scott Morrison is actually a center right wing party. It's a center right wing party. Uh, so, I mean, this isn't necessarily a left winger doing this. No, not at all. And so, um, I- I'm not sure what we'll actually see. I-, I imagine, you know, given the federal government stepping in, uh, this exemption will probably not be upheld. Um, but uh, again, I mean, the Australian Open is, is a quite an important event. Djokovic, of course, um, is one of the most famous tennis players in the world today. Uh, and so there's a kind of a lot riding on this and we'll see what happens. I mean, this impacts both sports and politics. Yeah, absolutely. Anything else happening in the world? I mean, I'm sure there's plenty that's happening in the world right now. But No, Andre, no, not, not I don't think anything. There's, of course, a lot you know, worth mentioning, but I do want to say uh, it is a new year. Uh, we have had a lot of conversations over the past year of the podcast, and I just want to um, kind of express our gratitude to our listeners um, and to all of our, our guests that have come onto the podcast. Um, we've, we've seen a lot of growth over the past year, um, and we've had a lot of great conversations on, on a variety of, of topics. And so I'm, I'm really looking forward to what 2022 holds for us. Absolutely. It's going to be a good year, hopefully. <laughs> hopefully. <laughs> yeah, you know, and, and hopefully COVID... Uh, doesn't prevent us from you know getting together again. Hopefully, starting to do in-person podcasts once Andre moves to the to uh, DC. Um, but hey, you know you never know what the Burn Bag Podcast is going to be up to. Exactly. Well, for now, uh, check us out on Monday. We have a new episode releasing. But we'll see you soon. See you next time. 